Hey, I'm Brett Gornick. I'm Jason Lobig. Welcome to the Live Better Podcast. Best day ever. We are coaches, trainers, retreat leaders, and wellness advisors, but didn't start our careers doing this. Jason worked in public accounting, and I worked in corporate retail until starting our dream business in which we help people from all different industries pursue their best day ever every single day. The goal of this podcast is to interview both each other and other professionals making an impact on the world on how wellness is the fuel to do whatever it is in life you want to do better. This podcast is about teaching people to actively pursue their purpose and how to use self-care to do it. We're here to show you how the best day of our mindset is available to anyone at any time, no matter your circumstance. It's your choice and we're here to encourage you. You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and even YouTube. You can also listen to our podcast on www.livebetterco.org. Have the best day ever. Live Better Podcast here. Jason, Brett, and James Silvis, the mindset specialist. We are pumped to have James on the show. James, where are you checking in from? Checking in from Las Vegas. Sunny and Vegas. hot. Wow. We were chatting before the before the call, but it seems like the pool parties are closed down for the summer. So Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> it's going to be insane if that's the case. Um, yeah, well, we're really pumped to to have you on and to to talk mindset and so many things start from that. And I think that that's where um, decisions are made. That's how actions are taken. And we're both on that same journey where we're about spoke in the fire and just getting people to to do the things that they know they want to do. So let's hear about um, when you hear the word mindset, what comes into your head and mm. where do you start? Yeah, when I when I hear mindset, I think of a couple things. I think of ownership, which another word would be accountability or responsibility. I think of story. Uh, I think of action. And then I think of feedback, you know, being able to like in real time, analyze and assess how effective your actions are in, in, in trajectory of where you want to go. Yeah. I think all, all of those things are kind of where, where those all wrap up together is, is where the mindset comes from. Mm -hmm. So within your journey, within the, you know, things that you've gone through just to develop those, those pillars that you just mentioned, can you give us some, some backstory about how you've come about to think about mindset that way? I think a lot of people know what mindset is. They understand when they are in a zone, they understand when they're frustrated, they understand that if they do specific things in specific order that they are more productive. But for some reason, people fall off that and people go back into habits. And so I think really starting to understand how you've come to this, how you've come to understand this is a place where a lot of people are. And it's always interesting to hear how people came to kind of think of what they consider to be mindset. So where did this all start for you? Yes. So uh, my dad, I'll give you kind of backstory of like how I grew up back. Backstory is my dad grew up with nine siblings. Um, you know, they weren't very well off. And I think my dad growing up in that type of family felt that in order for him to get love and praise and acceptance from, you know, his parents, or at least he saw it this way, he needed to be the best at whatever he did. So he needed to be the fastest, the strongest, the the most athletic. And so that developed a very strong competitive drive in my dad, which, you know, as a byproduct is discipline and structure and just going after what you want, not thinking too much of it, just taking action. So I think from my dad, I learned this, this, this discipline, this focus, this intensity, this desire to sacrifice for the goal. Then my mom uh, was pregnant at 14 and a half on accident. Guy ran off. She raised my older brother. Um, and then shortly after that, within a seven-year span, lost both of her parents and both of her brothers. And she's one of the strongest women I know. And from her, I've learned resiliency, compassion, intuition, love, understanding. And so I had a good blend of, you know, parental 
support that I think helped build the skill sets necessary for me to be adaptive and intuitive enough to know how to navigate relationships. And I was in sports at the age of six, base, uh, baseball and football. And that's kind of where I started to develop my leadership capacities. And, you know, it was one, one thing that my dad always told me is like, you got to show up early, and you got to leave late. If you're wanting to not only be the leader of the team, which wasn't a goal of mine, it was more so just to, you know, perform at my best and to win. Um, I started doing that. I started saying, if I'm going to, if I'm going to speak about something, I have to make sure that I'm going to back it up by my actions. And just through the consistency of showing those actions over and over, my teammates began to take notice of that. And naturally over time, um, with my skill set developing and, and the effort that I was putting in, I naturally started to enter more of these leadership roles. And with that, tied with my competitive drive to win, I learned how to say the right thing at the right time and understand people's personalities and needs just enough to know how to motivate them. And that kept our teams winning. And you know that, that fueled my number one desire. And it also helped me feel like I was making a difference. So that kind of led into high school and my, that skill set strengthened, you know, people, I think naturally, this is what they've told me that they feel comfortable telling their whole life story. And so I got really good at listening and I would just give suggestions based off what I thought would be helpful. They would go apply the information and come back and say, Hey, what you, what you told me really helped. And I'm like, awesome. That's great. And they're like, you need to do this for a living. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't, what is this? I don't know what this is. Or like, you need to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And I'm like, yeah, no, this is just me helping. So I, I had that skill set, um, whether I was born with it or just developed over the years. And then in college is when it all shifted. I went to college you know, I got a couple offers to play football at a couple of really big colleges, but decided that my heart wasn't in it. So it didn't make sense for me to put in four, four years of something that I wasn't fully committed to. So I went to UNLV and while there, I studied under, um, I did a kinesiology degree with the hopes of doing physical therapy because that was the closest thing to sports that I thought that I wanted. Got in the industry for three years, decided that's not for me. I can't work there nine to five. I needed to do something bigger, something different. I needed to be more dynamic. And at that time, when I was in the physical therapy kind of clinic, still in my undergrad, I had a, a professor that is still a really great mentor today who I've learned... Uh, so much information from. He was a four-time world, world-renowned mental performance coach and taught me about neuroscience, psychology, mental performance, um, how we learn the, the brain, the body connection. And I was just fascinated and mind blown every class. I would stay after, I'd ask questions. I actually ended up working with him for six months after I graduated. And all the information that I learned there, I started to implement into my own life, started to see some results, and then started sharing it with my friends and my family. And they started getting similar results. And it just kind of morphed into this sharing of this uh, information. I started, started seeing all these great transformations. And I'm like, okay, this is right around the time where I was questioning whether what I wanted to do. I had left physical therapy and got into the industry in Las Vegas, which is working at the clubs. So for those of you who have been to Vegas, you may know Wet Republic. I worked there for a couple of years, and that was actually the beginning of my speaking career. Um, so all that was going on as I was formulating these techniques that I would share with those that asked and those that I felt I can serve. So I went back to high. I went to my back to my high school and pitched like sports psychology programs to the sports teams that ended up blossoming into other high schools to colleges. I ended up taking a lot of that knowledge and, and knocking doors, um, you know, in corporate settings and saying that I can help with their culture, improve the morale, improve the productivity and help the, your employees become stronger mentally, which obviously will yield more profits and just a, a better overall cohesive culture. And then I started developing one-on-one -on -one clients and started calling myself a coach and would hear people's stories and help them break through their fears, their insecurities, and come up with, you know, a plan on how to get from point A to point B. And that over time has allowed me to work with, you know, over 6,000 people from eight different countries. And I don't claim to be the smartest. I don't claim to know it all. But when you work with that amount of people, you start to see that there's patterns, patterns that lead people in the direction they want to go or lead them away from where they want to go. And a big part of 
going in the direction that you want to go is you have to own it. But with that ownership comes a lot of, um, a lot of sacrifice. It's, it could be heavy at times, you know, it requires you to settle for short-term pain for long-term pleasure rather than settling for short-term pleasure, which will equivalent, equivalent, equivalent to long-term pain. So that's kind of a little backstory on how I got to where I'm at. That is super interesting and really um, kind of incredible track. I think it's really nice to hear somebody's story weave together because as we were discussing um, the last time we chatted, I think people always want to look at that end result and just have a really hard time needing to start at the beginning. So one of the things that I want to ask you about is going all the way back to the beginning of that kind of origin story. How did your mom talk to you about her experience? So when you said, you know, I, I learned resiliency, I learned some of these other um, really important character traits. Mm-hmm. How did she communicate that to you kind of at like, at what age um, yeah. and then you could also follow that up with just asking or just telling us to like how you also learned that information from your dad too. Like, was it just watching? Did he tell you explicitly? Like what, mm-hmm. type, what type of environments did you pick that up? in? because I think it's interesting that as you move through it, right, you've worked with sports teams, corporate individuals. We've seen a lot of that in our own individual work. And I know that that comes from very different places. And you also start to pick up really interesting things from different environments. But, you know, some of our really like baseline character traits definitely, obviously, develop at home in the first place. Like those those are two like really key instrumental teachers. So I I would love to hear hear kind of how your mom described that to you and then and also where you learn some of those things from your dad. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for, for asking that. Uh, so my mom, it was a mixture of questions that she would ask me slash, uh, telling stories of what her childhood was like, just like in the car, coming back from school at the dinner table, um, you know, at, at family gatherings, there would be this kind of information share that I would, and that I would always be very attentive to my dad is, as, and I'm going to kind of bob back and forth because things that I learned from my dad helped me pick up lessons from my mom and things I learned from my mom helped me pick up things from my dad. My dad is a talker. He's very passionate. He's very vocal about the things that he cares about. And so I just remember writing back from all of my sports, like from, you know, baseball games, football games, practices, we would have these long truck rides. These were the, this was the perfect environment for my dad to, talk about all the things that he's learned in his life because I can't go anywhere, right? And my dad gets so passionate about his life and what he was able to do. And and just, I think he wanted me to be so successful that he saw those as very big opportunities to start talking about it. And he would just talk the whole entire time. And, and maybe I'd have room for a couple sentences or a few questions, but because he talks so much, I think I just had to naturally become really good at listening. And so that listening skill of hearing my dad's tonality, how he told stories, you know, how his, how people would describe him as enthusiastic. Why did they say that? That that was kind of all in the background. So I was sifting through all that data as well as kind of listening for the infused lessons that he was trying to give to me that then allowed me to be more receptive with my mom, knowing that her backstory and talking about her, her dad and her mom and her brothers. And so there was a mixture of questions. There was a mixture of me watching my mom interact with people. Like she was always the person that was hardly judgmental. She would always ask questions that most people wouldn't ask because most people wouldn't be listening and or care. But my mom was so compassionate because she had come from such a harsh background that she wanted to make people feel important. And so I think that was one of the biggest skills that my mom had taught me, which is like a compassion understanding piece was like every human that you interact with can teach you something. That was one of her biggest lessons that she would always reiterate to me. And so what that kind of built in my mind was approaching every situation with an open mind 
so that I can learn. And even if I'm learning something that I shouldn't do, I'm still learning. And that kept me engaged in conversations rather than thinking that I needed to prove myself or show people how smart I am or, you know, whatever. So that's, and then my mom would share more of her story as I got older and how I, and I have, how I have more understanding of it. And so that's kind of like how it evolved for my mom. My dad with the competition and discipline, he would demonstrate that, uh, through actions with like, with workouts. So he would help me structure how I would train for football. And he'd show me how he did pushups and he'd tell me stories about, you know, why these pushups work. And, and as a result of doing these sprints this way and pushups this way and bench this way and squats this way, like he was able to perform on the field. And so he would show me what to do. And then he would tell me the result as that I, that what I would get based off the work that I was doing. And so he made it really easy for me to buy into the system of how I believe things should go and how he believed things should go. So he taught me that way. He taught me through the talks in the truck. And, um, I was just very observant as a child. Like I, my parents were so loving and they fostered a great environment full of love. I didn't ever have to worry about where my next meal was going to come from, or, you know, if I was going to get hit or anything like that, it was more so just this, this unspoken rule of do your best and continually improve. And I think that was good in a lot of ways, but there, it also did become destructive and maybe we'll get into this later, but I almost became addicted to that having to grow in order to get love. Like I have to be number one in order to be validated. I had to get the trophy or the award so that my parents would celebrate it because if I didn't get it, then it was like, good job. But there was no exaggeration. There was no emotion there. So I think I unconsciously assumed that I have to have things and get things in order to be loved or appreciated. Yeah, and what an interesting balance like the last point you just made between achievement and appreciation and the way that that ties into how we feel motivated intrinsically mm-hmm. extrinsically like it is a complicated relationship and yeah. not really a great line to draw like it's kind of individual to the person like you know everyone's watching this michael jordan documentary right now and the last episode ended with him in tears describing the need to bring all these people up to his level. Mm-hmm. And it's like that drive has sacrifice. Like yes. it has consequences of wanting more, more, more and never being content. And like that, it's a, that's a tough line to cross. But um, I, so thank you for bringing that up. I think it's, that's such an important thing, especially for the really type A high performers listening to this is like, we get addicted to more, you get addicted to better. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to kind of jump off that train. I want to hear you talk about the first time you ever said, Hey, I'm James, I'm this performance coach speaker and charged for it. What was the first time that you got a client individual or corporate, or you could talk about um, you know, a very meaningful, you know, um, professional exchange, wh- wherever that falls on the timeline. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a vivid story. So at this point, I had been working at Wet Republic for uh, two seasons. And while there, I had announced through winning uh, an employee of the week, I had a net part of that process is taking home like a, a little box that you go home and put something in it that represents you. And then you come back, you thank the staff and you share a little bit about who you are. And the first season that I worked at Wet Republic, I brought home this box. I put a, uh, some Tony Robbins CDs in there and I came back and I said, thank you for voting for me. You know, and um, just so you all know, like I, I'm starting to step into this like coaching and speaking space. I really want to do this for a living and I feel called to do it and I love doing it. And so that's why I put these CDs in here. Everybody gave me a standing ovation or like, you know, clapped, whatever. And then I go to my section and the GM comes up to me and he's like, so is this really what you want to do? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, how do you feel speaking to the staff every Friday for the rest of the season? And just motivating us. And I'm like, are you serious? Like in my mind, I'm like, motivationally speaking to a bar 
<laughs> like to do what, you know, like this had never been done before. I'd never heard of this before. And he's like, no, I'm serious. And I go, okay, yeah. So I committed. I said, yes. The next week I came in, I gave a speech, five minutes known as the jelly bean speech. It's recorded. It's on my YouTube. It actually ended up going viral within MGM and multiple properties like said, who is this guy? This guy's pretty good. People came up to me afterwards and said, Hey, you have a gift. You need to pursue this. And that was kind of the first opening of like, maybe I can, if I could do it at wet Republic, I could do it anywhere. So that gave me the, the confidence to like start thinking about it. So fast forward two seasons, I'm at the tail end. My, my wife is working at a real estate company and it's a pretty reputable real estate company in Vegas with a well-known like multimillionaire owner. We're at the Christmas party. And at this point I hadn't fully claimed like James Silvis, the, the speaker and coach. Right. And he, and he like through throughout conversation at the table, he looks over at me and he goes, James, what do you do? Right. Which is like the question of like <laughs> some people hate to get asked and some people hate to ask it, but like, now was my moment. I wasn't going to say I'm a busser at what Republic now was a chance for me to claim this thing that I had been thinking about. So I said, uh, I'm a speaker and a performance coach. And I remember saying it and being like, Oh shit, I committed. <laughs> and, he's, and he's like, okay, cool. Uh, so what does that mean? And I'm like, well, basically, you know, the idea is I work with companies, I work with individuals on their mindset to help them break through, take action, achieve their goals, work together. And, you know, I kind of gave him the spiel and he goes, okay, awesome. Who have you worked with? And I'm like, damn, man. And at this point I had only given two speeches. Okay. One at wet Republic which where, where I was currently working and two was an eighth grade graduation. So I said, well, you know, I've spoken at wet Republic to a staff of 80, you know, motivating them to da, 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 da. And then I also spoke to an eighth grade graduation on the importance of, you know, having the right mindset going into college or high school and then college and, you know, throughout your whole life. But I'm, and then I shifted it, but I'm trying to get into, you know, real estate at companies that like, and I, I kind of pivoted it more towards like what I'm going to do. And he goes, uh, how much do you charge? <laughs> and I'm like, come on, man. Like, I haven't thought about any of these questions. So it was good that he was asking it to me, but it now was kind of, <laughs> well, yeah. And so I don't want to go too high and shoot myself in the foot. And I also don't want to go too low and make it seem like it's not valuable enough. Right. So I'm like, um, you know, I charge a hundred bucks for 15 minutes. It was just something that came to me. There was no science behind that number. It just sounded good. And there's a little bit of silence and he goes, all right, what's your schedule look like next week? And I'm like, it's open. And he goes, how do you feel about coming in and motivating my, my real estate agents to, you know, get out there and sell more? We could use something like this. And I'm like, you know, in my mind, I'm like, what is happening? So I said, yes, obviously. And he's like, cool, let's do it. And so the next week comes around. I'm so nervous. Like this guy is a millionaire. He's going to know that like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I, I must have prepped eight, 10 hours just for this 15 minutes. And, you know, I, I put my suit on, I, I pulled up in the parking lot and I don't have enough confidence to get out of the car. I'm like, my, my career is going to be ruined before it even gets started. And I'm sitting there in the car. And luckily, six months before, I'd, I had written down a list of things that I was proud of. I call it the confidence catalog. And it was these moments that, you know, invoked this, this like belief in myself. It was like, you know, memories from high school, uh, things that sales numbers that I had at my previous jobs. And like all these things that I was proud of, right, personally and professionally. And I started reading through that list. And as I was reading through it, I put on a song that, you know, I don't know if you have a song, but I think people listening may have a song that makes them feel like they can do anything. So I put the song on and I was reading all of these memories. And sure enough, it gave me just enough confidence to get out of the car and walk through the front door. I walked through the front door, sat in front of the, the six or eight agents that were there. And I went through the presentation. And afterwards, I said, thank you for my, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And that's it. And there was silence. And I didn't know if this silence was good or if this silence was bad. And I'm looking at the guy who brought me in. And he's just staring at me in the eyes. 
And it's like five, six seconds. Like it's, it's forever. And he goes, wow, that was probably the best presentation I've ever seen. And my, like my mouth drops without it dropping. Like in my mind, I'm like, oh my gosh, is this real? And he looks at all of his agents and he goes, if you don't listen to anything that James just said, you no longer work for me. He just spilt the, the most honest truth that we can all, if we just embody it, then we can change not only our life, but our profession. James, thank you for your time. You're worth every penny. Your check's at the desk. I appreciate your time. Have a good day. And I walked out and I was like, oh my gosh, what just happened? Uh, so that was a big moment. That was the catalyst to like say, okay, this is the thing. Well, you did not shy away from taking action. When <laughs> We talked about that at the start. <laughs> I mean, unreal. I think, man, that got me hyped. Just listen to that. I was like, that is incredible. I think Thanks, one of the things I drew from that is that when faced with the question, you decided to answer where you wanted to go. And I loved that um, as opposed to just saying, well, I'm thinking about being a coach or like, I kind of have this thing. You were like, no, I do this. You, you were truthful about what you've done and you decided where you wanted to go. One thing that I want to ask is you've dealt now with clients from all over the world, from different backgrounds, from backgrounds like yours that had supportive parents, from backgrounds like some that didn't have supportive parents. And I think when it all distills down to a couple things, one of those, like you mentioned, is the fact that we need to take action. We can come up with whiteboards and ideas and have dreams for years. It's those that actually go out and say they're, they are who they want to be and go do it. When you deal with or consult with or coach a client, how do you facilitate somebody to take that step? Um, what are some of the strategies? What are some of the ways in which you've seen work to help somebody to say, all right, I want to be X. I'm currently Y. This is what I'm going to do to take action. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And um, it's, it's a simple answer, but it's not easy to implement. And you know, we, it's, I've worked with so many different backgrounds and the, the thing that helps me get these people to take action is, is understanding what their purpose is and the diff and, and pain and pleasure. Like these are the three P's, right? It's like, what is your purpose and what is that purpose going to allow you to endure through the pain and why are you doing it so that you can ultimately get to the pleasure and like understanding those three three P's there. And every person's different. Everyone has a different tipping point. Everyone, some people may be more pain motivated. Some people may be more pleasure motivated. So I have to know how to communicate those points. But the idea is to get them to verbally say, what are the consequences for them not taking action? And what are the benefits for them taking action? It's like the hell if you don't, heaven if you will. Like they need to verbalize that because as long as I tell them what I think to be true, they have a chance to disagree with it. But once they say it, it has to be true. It's coming from their mouth. So as a coach, for me, my number one job is to get them to say the thing that I know they need to say and accept in order for that first action to take place. So it's the heaven if you will, hell if you don't, that is ultimately funneling into the greater purpose, which is the why, you know, it's like, this goes in, you could pull this from uh, Victor Frankl's work of like having a purpose, having that hope, having something meaningful that you're going after. Uh, if you don't have that or have some sort of direction, you may take action temporarily, but it won't be long sustaining. You need to have a clear, as clear as you can at the moment, idea of what, that action that you're going to take is going, what direction is it taking you in? Because people can take action. I can get people to take action, but is that action aligned? And is that action going to be fulfilling? Because it, with any action, there's always going to be consequence. And action takes energy. And if that action that requires energy isn't attached to something that you desperately want, then 
you're only going to take action for so long. And then you maybe even become resentful because it's really not the direction that you're wanting to go. So like, it's really, I think it's just a mixture of understanding all those three and no particular order, you know, ease, sometimes it's easier to start with purpose first, but sometimes people may be so bombarded and so unclear of that, that you may just need to get them away from where they're at. So they get them to take action out of that area by pain motivating them. Look, if you don't take any action, here's what's going to happen. X, Y, Z. You know, you're going to lose your significant other. Your family's not going to have any support from you. You're going to wake up and look in the mirror and not be happy with what you see. That's going to compound and it's going to, you know, wreak havoc in your professional life in the way that you lead your teams. And I just go down the list and I say, is that what you want? Obviously, no. Okay. Tell me more about what will happen if you don't change. And then I get them to say it. And then once they understand that there's no option of staying still, then it's like, okay, now why are we going to take action in the other direction? So that's kind of a, a loose framework that I initially will work with somebody on. No, that I think that's super important because one thing I, I drew from that is that you have to, two things. I like the the topic that you said about that every action has consequence. I think that that's something that everybody needs to realize that when you're pursuing something that it's not all, everything you ever do isn't the right thing at the right time. Right. Um, and that you have to go through a lot of those ups and downs. And then I think the other thing is that you have to make sure that before you even take action, that you are doing it in a direction in which you want to go. I think that's where a lot of people do a bunch of things. And this is, I mean, you see this, you know, Jason and I see this in the training realm. We see this when we when we coach people and you see people go hard for a, for a certain amount of time at something. Right. And it was it was because of most likely because of an external motivation. Mm. And then eventually that external motivation wears off and whatever was internally like really the desire like you talked about is no longer what they actually thought they wanted to do. So then they stop. Whether that's I'm going to run a mile, you know, I'm going to train for this event. I'm going to be better in my relationship. It doesn't even really matter what that is. It's all about, is this really what I want to go do? And I'm, I'm a massive goal setter. I do goal setting every single month. And every time I do my recaps, I always am open about this. And I'm like, this goal that I set, I now know that the reason I didn't accomplish it was because it really wasn't, it was something I really didn't want to do. And then I learned from that so that I know that the next time I set a goal, I have to look inward as opposed to just being like, hmm, what is my relationship goal for this next quarter? Well, be more open. Like if I just think of it on a whim, it doesn't have any residence and it never sustains. So yeah. how do you work with that? Like, I love where, where that's going. It's like, how do you really make sure that when somebody sets a goal, decides to do something that it's like, yo, we're going to actually do this? Because one thing that you and I and Jason know is that since we've started our businesses, since we've started our own thing, like we knew that we wanted to do something and that's why we're still doing it because we've had mm -hmm. ups and downs, lefts and rights, turnarounds, but we're still doing it because whatever drove us to that point was something that we knew we wanted to do. So how do you work with somebody like to get that? Yeah, it's, it's a skill and it's an art um, and, and everyone's different. But before I answer that, I want to kind of take a step back real quick and, and make, make sure that I really emphasize the cheap thrill of learning. I think because of fear of failure or fear of success or whatever fear of embarrassment, whatever fear is, is maybe crippling you, it's easy to stay in the data collection mode. Um, and because you have these psychological highs and I've been so guilty of this of like, I'm learning. I feel like I'm growing, but if that knowledge isn't being applied through action, then it's just concept. It's just thought. And what you did read may not work for you because your situation is different and you won't know that until you take action. So it's one thing to research and know where you're at, what industry you're in, what strategy is going to be best, knowing the pitfalls, like that's great. But I think the person that is doing all of that needs to have a really honest conversation as to when is enough enough 
And when are you just doing it to justify to yourself that you're doing enough when you know that the real thing you should be doing is taking action? So I think that process can create some sort of analysis paralysis that I just kind of wanted to preface before getting to this next part. But like what I look for is the emotional component. And like I had mentioned back when I was listening to my dad, I'm very attuned to tonality and I read body language and, you know, most of our communication unconsciously is body language. And so when people tell me that they want X, Y, and Z, I'm not just listening to their words. I'm listening to how they say the words. What words are they using? And what is their body doing as they're saying it the way that they're saying it and attaching the word that they think is best to use in that situation? And it's like the dance of combining all of that information for me to internally say, is this real? Or is this just a front that this person is trying to appease me by saying? Um, and sometimes I've felt fallen for it. Like some people will say, I want to do this. I'm like, okay, let's go. And I just took their word at face value. But the longer I do what I do, the more I realize that the people's first answers are very rarely the answers that will make them move. And as a coach, I need to dig deeper to the root, not the fruit. Because if you understand the roots, you know the fruits. And so like for me, it's getting to that point through question asking, through analysis of tonality, body language, um, and constantly checking it. Like, are you sure? And then, and then playing like devil's advocate and saying, I don't think you can do that. And seeing if they like fight back, you know? Well, yeah, maybe you're right. What do you mean I'm right? Like, I'm just testing you the same way someone else will test you. And you just gave up this thing that you said you wanted. So it's a mixture of like challenge, observation um, that is is being all all gathered through listening and, and seeing. The, the concept of the cheap thrill of learning is so relevant. And I think, you know, what's interesting is that as you come through, you know, assuming that most people listening to this came up through a formal education system yeah that you are also rewarded for just regurgitating information that you haven't done anything with yet so like the application for some of the emotional learning gets applied through sports some mm -hmm. of it gets applied through our socialization but like the learning process like sitting down and formally learning to grow in your intellect as a school function for so long has so little real world application. And then yeah. we get out of it and you get a lot of these people who get, you know, pushed into a job track that they don't really love necessarily. You know, I was included in that. I worked in public accounting out of school. And once you start learning about, you know, your side hustles and your side passions, like that itch, get scratched, but you're still mm -hmm. not doing anything with it. And to your point, you so much like you get this huge like dopamine boost. Yeah. I'm learning new stuff. And I think that's why people are perpetually stuck in like only reading self-help books. Like what did you actually do after you read the book? You just opened a new one because you're just <laughs> like satisfying that addiction for like kind of new personal growth information, but then you don't actually ever change because you never use the information. And, right. you know, personally from, from myself and for Brett, we have been forced into so many learning situations and have also said yes to things. I was kind of laughing the whole time you were describing your, <laughs> your, your, uh, your story about charging for clients because we have said yes to so many jobs where it was like, all right, well, we're going to figure it out now. And <laughs> right. That's what produces like the real growth because then you learn what you do and don't know. And then you go back, you learn more. And then from one work opportunity, you get the chance to do another. And that's where you then apply your new learning. Yes. And that process never ends. But the problem is people have that gap between learning and doing and you can say stuff, you can make Instagram story posts with your favorite quotes, and you can read as many self-help books you want, you can listen to podcasts all day. 
but until you go out and you do something with it, it you just you don't actually grow. You kind of just trick yourself into thinking you grow. Mm-hmm. Right, which is so much safer. And to the brain's point of existence, like its job is to protect you, survival, um, and that could be metaphorically or actually literally. Um, it makes sense why our minds can go there. But if you want to achieve greatness at whatever level that is for you, however you choose to define that, you're going to have to understand and become aware of when the, that dialogue that's coming from that survival-based thinking like, presents itself. Otherwise, you're going to sabotage these great opportunities for you to evolve and to the next level and ultimately achieve that goal that you say you want and that by getting it, you'll be able to serve and help so many other people in the wake of your success. Uh, when you, when you think about taking that to its, to its fullest extent, um, talk to us about be the 1%, be that 1%, which is, you use that a lot. It's the name of your podcast. I'm sure that extends beyond that to walk us through what that means and sort of tie that into the last statement, because I feel like, you know, that, that very much is what it is. It is living to your, you know, the, that upper echelon of your potential and pushing that forward. So walk us through, um, what that means to you. Yeah. So when people first hear that, they're like, Oh, be, be the top 1% of finances or top 1% in an industry. And that's not where it originated. And that's still not what it is. Um, it's easy to draw that conclusion. But so thank you for asking that question, because it allows me to offer the distinction. I came up with that phrase in probably one of my most troubling times. And I think the, the, the troubling times, the challenging times, the uncertain times are is the most fertile ground for innovation and uh, opportunities for you to show yourself more of yourself. And when I had left Wet Republic, I, I knew that I needed to leave because if I didn't, the money was too good. I was making, you know, 60 to 80,000 a year working three days a week, eight months out of the year. Like you, I mean, why, why leave? It's so good. But I knew that's what I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I did it because I needed more money at the time, but I always knew that it was a short-term thing. And so I knew that I needed to put my two weeks in. So I did at the end of that second season. But when I put those two weeks in, I didn't have a, I didn't have a, a laid out plan. Like there were really no clients that I had. So as soon as that season ended in, what was it? November, 2014, from then until April 2015, I door knocked, door knocked businesses, like as many as I could possibly find, driving down the street, see a sign, do research on Google real quick, practice a pitch in my car, and literally walk up to the front door and, you know, knock and say, Hey, my name is James Silvis. I'm a performance coach, da, 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 and went through the whole thing. And I, I've gotten so many no's, CEOs that looked at me like I was like a kid, like, who, who are you? What can you teach me? And pretty soon, you know, being that young and that new into this business endeavor, that ate at me fast. Like I started to question, you know, did I make the right choice? Am I as, am I built for this? Am I as good as I think I could be? Or am I as good as I think I am? Um, you know, maybe this isn't for me. And those, those conversations were long, they were in depth and they were painful. And I remember one time where I was on the verge of like throwing in the towel, I was sitting on the couch and I was on Instagram of all things. And I was like thinking about what I was feeling and I was making an Instagram post and I said, and just, it, it was just something that came out of me. It, it, I didn't like formulate it. I wasn't like, oh, I'm onto a good thought. It just literally, my fingers started typing it. And the post was, you know, do what 99% won't be that 1%. And I just sat on that. And I'm like, be that 1%. Be the one out of 100 people 
that says yes. If 100 people say that they're going to go after their dream and 99 stop for whatever reason, you be the one. Be the one that picks up trash on the side of the street when no one else will. Be the one that stands up for somebody when they're being bullied or picked on. Be the one that stands for truth when everyone else is afraid to speak theirs. Be the one that is challenging themselves to to be better so that they can serve at a higher level. Like that's that's what the the essence of it was at that time. And so I loved it so much and that that's kind of what turned my mindset around to help me continue to do so what I'm doing now. And shortly after I got my first client and replaced that wet income with, you know, the same amount of hours a week at a company with over 100 employees and I got my my big well, I don't want to say a big break, but I got a an opportunity and I took advantage of it and I stayed there for four years. And that was the foundation of what I've been able to create. And I don't know if I would have gotten to that point if that phrase hadn't entered my mind and it became something that I, that was my philosophy. That was like my best friend in times of darkness. So it, it I think it just simply means like do what most are afraid to do. Like don't, don't allow the naysayers, don't allow your fear don't allow the uncertainty to be stronger than your desire to want to be better or go after the things that you want. I think that's such a really cool personal anecdote that that came out of not something that came out of something that you came up with. I think it's, it's interesting listening to people talk about the way that they want to form their own business and they say, oh, well, I hear clients say X, Y, Z all the time. So this is going to be my, this is going to be my tagline or my mission. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's so much stronger, especially for a performance coach, a speaker, somebody who is speaking from a lot of personal experience to use something from that individual experience to like drive their business forward. And those moments of self-discovery, I think are so powerful. And you can hear that in your voice when you talk about it. Like, I think it's cool that you use something that you used yourself in that drive to be what you want to like manifest and reaffirm and bring those things to life that I'm sure you do with um, private clients. Now I'm sure that's part of what you talk about when you face a a corporate culture. Um, Talk about like the way in which, you um, sort of started to work with private clients alongside corporate and maybe how those things kind of differ for you. Yeah. So uh, one-on-one started by me just putting like a Facebook post out or just sending a text to all the, you know, I joined a fraternity in college, sending a text to all my brothers in the fraternity. And just first step was just letting people know that I'm doing it. And, you know, five people reached out. And they're like, I'm interested in this. I'm like, cool. They're like, how much you charge? I'm like, 20 bucks an hour. Just come over to my house. <laughs> so they came over, knocked on the front door. And they're like, all right, I'm ready. And I'm like, cool, let's go up to the office. So I got out a whiteboard. It was just two couches and a whiteboard in this room in my house. And I'm like, so what do you want? And they're like, I want this. All right, why haven't you gotten it? And it was just like, just this, the most basic elementary starting ground that I think any person that was in that situation would have done. And it just kind of evolved from there. Um, So that's kind of how it started. The corporate side was a a result of the door knocking. And I got that one client and I started creating all these benchmarkers. Like it became, it became an experiment and an actual delivery of service. So in order to secure that that contract, I created a 30 day test period. It's like, Hey, don't, don't sign a year long contract with me, sign a 30 day contract. And if you see results, let's continue. And if not, I won't take it personal, but you'll pay for the 30 days. I'll deliver and we'll see what happens. And so after the 30 days, I was able to bring their culture. I I created like this culture score of like fulfillment and happiness and productivity and had them rank on a scale of one to 10. And the average, when I first got there, first day was 5.5 on like happiness, efficiency, all all these metrics that I created. At the end of the 30 days, we were at 7.2. So we had a huge jump. And I showed that to the person that brought me on that, you know, gave me the opportunity. And that's what allowed me to sign the year contract that then turned into another year, another year, another year, four years later. 
Um, so, and then while I was there, I started creating these corporate kind of like blueprints that I could then take what I'm learning with this company and then use it at other companies, maybe scale up or scale down, just depending on the industry or how many employees or, um, you know, what the needs are of the business. And so I was, it was all happening simultaneously. One-on-one was a little bit more hyper-specific because it was just isolated to a one-on-one. And then the corporate was, you know, balancing the the bureaucracy, the politics, the leadership with the grass, grassroots employees and like how to merge all of that, which was a lot for me, especially beginning so early, me being 24, 25 at the time, I didn't have much experience, but I had ridiculous work ethic and the ability to listen and intuitively like, or not that my intuition wasn't as built then. So it was more so just listening and adjusting. And I wasn't afraid to um, innovate quickly and try new things and, and get people to buy in. And so I think just over time, processes began, began to form ways of thinking, ways of being, ways of doing began, began to be habitualized in my kind of everyday talk. And that led to, you know, getting clients like MGM or Caesars or uh, one-on-ones having these high profile clients. It just kind of just stair-stepped its way through the consistent practice of showing up and delivering um, and, and reflecting and like what's working, what's not working, what do I like to do versus what do I don't like to do? And like, there's just constant check-in points. I think that's allowed me to kind of scale it. One thing from that, that I think is of extreme value is the consistency piece of it. And I think that when people start something on their own or they break away from what is considered their normal, um, consistency is always of value, always showing up, always putting in the work. And I also think that consistency is also the hardest part of it. And so (laughs) I think just it's, it feels good to show up the first few times, right? It probably felt really fun to walk into those first few businesses and give that speech. But then after a hundred in a row said no, it's really easy to shut down. And that's where I think that people will dig for a long time. And a lot of people put in a lot of work. And it's like, if you were to just look a little bit further, take two more shovels out of that dirt, you'd hit gold. And so where do you and how do you help people with the consistency piece of it when there's not result necessarily immediately? Like if you were to hit, you know, you have, you're on your 50th cold call to a client and you haven't signed anyone and you're out of your job and all of that. How do you, how do you help people that are in that state that you know, and they know that they have the skill to do it to stay, to stay on? Yeah. It's a great question. Uh, I think that before any of that happens, there needs to be an expression of time and the importance that time plays in the unfolding of whatever someone wants. Sometimes things happen quicker, sometimes they happen longer, but the time talk needs to be had so that unrealistic expectations don't get set in place, which leads to... um, this kind of like upset frustration that then gets in the, it interferes with the momentum that can be built. It adds more friction than needed. So I think you need to have that talk, but you know, if you're out there knocking doors or cold calling, or you're on a call with a client and you're pitching your best service and you know, it's no after no, it's there's a, it's, it's a hard, very complicated sometimes way of navigating it because it's like, do I need, am I doing it wrong? Is there something that I need to change? Um, How many times do I need to do it before I actually get something? And like all those are things that can't, I don't know if they can be answered as, as clearly as one would like. So it's like uh, there needs to be constant checking in to, to know, okay, well, did you get closer to them saying yes this time? Or how long did the conversation last versus how long did the, you know, did it last before? Are you getting more comfortable saying it? 
Um, what words are you using? And then it's like, then it's an experimental game because the, the script that I may use to assign clients may not be your script. And I think that kind of goes back to the brand of be that 1%. It's like, I help clients find a strategy that works for them, for them. Like I can, I can show people how to do what I do. Um, but then they, there may be a little bit of like, well, that works for you, James, but that doesn't work for me. And so to take that piece of it out, it's like, well, let's find something that works for you. And I'll incorporate some things that I've seen work from myself and all the other people that I coach, but you're going to have to buy in and start creating things that you like to do. So there's that collaboration piece. I'm not the coach that tells you what to do in some sense. I'm the coach that shows you how to think for yourself so that slowly our relationship can evolve. You're less dependent on me and you feel more uh, empowered to make your own calls and trust your own instincts. Because as long as I'm there and you continue to just depend on me, then we have a codependent relationship. And as much as I would, you know, you keep paying me, okay, that doesn't really fulfill me knowing that you're not getting better in that sense. So I hope that answers your question. I don't know if there's a clear cut, like yes or no answer, but um, that's kind of like how I would describe that. Totally. I think that that, that is exactly what, what needs to be said and sometimes needs to be heard because it's just not, it's not easy. And I think that people who have coaches or are seeking coaching or who don't have a coach and are relying on their own laurels need need to know that there's a lot that goes into it. And a lot mm-hmm. of times it's it's looking at yourself in the mirror. It's making sure that you're doing the right thing. And it's also just saying like, is this something that I am pursuing for the right reason, which goes back to everything you talked about at the start. And one of the things that that we work on with people is developing a mindset that we we talk about with the words, the best day ever. And we always work through that because we think that you have the opportunity to create that every single day. That is your choice. Whatever is thrown at you, you have the opportunity to react. And so I think when we talk about that with people, it's like, what are you doing? Like, what are you actually going out and doing? And so we love asking everybody, if you could wake up tomorrow, James, and travel bans are lifted, you can do whatever (laughs) you want. What does James' best day ever look like? (sighs) Uh, let's see, you know, as cliche and as simple as this may sound like I'm for the most part doing everything that I want to do like that, that is a honest, truthful answer. I mean, I'd like to say that, yeah, to, to pick up and go to Greece or to go chill in Australia for a little bit. Absolutely. But that has a shelf life. Like, the thing that I want to wake up and do is kiss my wife. Good morning. Say, I love you. Tell her that I'm thankful for her in my life because I wouldn't be anywhere without her. Um, to welcome my future baby that we're going to be having in like less than 53 days and like know that he or she is healthy and, and then to be able to spend time with them. And then also to be able to further my mastery in the craft that I love through podcast episodes like this, through my one-on-one sessions that I have with my clients, through the events that my wife and I put on, through the programs that we offer. Like I created those because I love doing those. And I know that they work because I've seen it work. And so to know that it works, to know that I love doing it, and to know that it's making the world a better place, and it's allowing me the freedom to spend time with the people that I love I think that it allows me to have success. And for a long time, defining success was really hard for me because it was always attached to some materialistic thing, whether it was how much money I had in the bank, how many clients I had, how many things I can like count. But now my definition of success that I recently just figured out, like within the last two weeks, is to success to me is all about love. Like success equals love for me. It's all about loving what you do uh, or spending more time doing what you love, spending time with people that you love and to make more money to do things, to do more of the things that you love. So whatever amount of money that is, go make that money. 
whatever the the job is that you love to do, go do that job. Whoever do whoever whoever you love spending time with, go spend more time with them. Like that for me is success. And so my perf- my best day is being able to do either all of those things at a high level or some of those things at a low level. Either way, I'm still living within the framework of what success is, which I consider to be my best day. Kudos to you, brother. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Man. That is that's an awesome way to frame it. And I think if if we could draw on that more, because I get my I get myself I, I try to live what you were talking about in the latter half of that and I and I sometimes fall my find myself falling into the first half. And yeah. I think that the more and more you hear it, the more and more you see people doing it, it it really just fortifies that that's not only possible, but something that's doable with, with the serious amount of effort. And so that was, a, that was an incredible, incredible response. When okay. people want to find out about you, learn more about what you're offering, whether it's a business or a one-on-one client or any courses that you have, where can people find out about more uh, of what you're, what you're doing and how can people connect? Yeah. So I have a, I actually have a question for you guys, but I'll answer your question and then maybe I can ask the question. Yeah, of course. Um, so I guess the best way to reach me is, is through Instagram. That's where I spend most of my time. It's, you know, James underscore Silvis, S-I-L-V-A-S. I'm sure you guys would put that in the show notes. Um, but I'm always there putting out free resources, IG lives. I have my own Be That 1% community on Facebook. Um, just join that. I go live in there, you know, just about weekly and post podcast episodes, articles, just continue to foster a community that I believe so much in and that has allowed me to get to the place that I'm at. So those are kind of like the main hubs. Uh, obviously I have a website, but you know, you can go check that out. I do have a mastermind coming up in August where that's geared towards eight to 10 individuals, uh, in the business entrepreneurial space all about elevating their income, impact, and influence. So if that resonates with you, definitely go check that out. Um, that's on my website at be that one percent.com forward slash commit to greatness. Um, but aside from that, I wanted to ask you about alluding to that you said that you were falling more into the beginning half and not necessarily the later half. I've been thinking about this concept that is still in its infancy with my thought process, but I kind of want to open that up for you guys. And I would love to hear your feedback, like for, for mastery, right? You talk about consistency. We talk about commitment to the process. We talk about getting better every single day, living your best, best life. And there are certain frameworks that you need to have in place, certain way of thinking in order for that to be a consistent thing. For a long time, I used to view mastery as, uh, something that I had to devote a majority of my time to, I had to silo my mastery, right? So it's like the Jeff Bezos, it's the Einsteins, it's these these people who are able to achieve incredible results because they put so much time and attention and focus into that one thing. But as a, as a byproduct of that, other things that may be important kind of fall by the wayside. And then, so there's that silo mastery, but then there's also this holistic mastery where you have maybe five or seven things that are important to you in your life and you're operating at 80% in all of them. And I used to think that you can only have a mastery if you siloed, but now I'm starting to open up my perspective around having mastery in holistic approaches. And although it may take longer because not as much time is being dedicated to, in this case, the craft, but uh, it still allows me to partake in the things that I love outside of that one thing that initially I would put so much of my time in. So do you, what are your thoughts on that? Like, did you, do you ever find yourself siloed and like, are you making transitions into being more holistic or like, where, where do you want to take that? It's a great question. I think, um, I, I contemplate this a lot and my, where my mind goes with it is being great versus being good. And I, and I think that, when you look at the greatest, right? Like the goat, we talked about Michael Jordan, you brought up Bezos. Um, when you look at the people that are the pinnacle, right? Mm-hmm. Even those that have done great things, there are fundamental things that they have done incorrectly that for the average person would be blown up. Examples, Jeff Bezos, failed relationship, Martin Luther King cheated on his wife, 
uh, Michael Jordan, gambling addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, you just look at all these people that are considered the greatest ever. And to your point, there was significant other failures or things that on an, uh, for, an, for, an, for anybody else would be massive devastation. And a, a lot of those probably were for them. And so it's like, where do you find in your head that you're going to decide to, like you said, create that holistic mastery? And I love that term because for me, what I, what I, when I get into those spaces where I'm just all in, like wanting to yeah. be the best, I take a step back and say, okay, if I'm willing to, if I want to do this, I'm going to have to draw from other resources, I'm going to have to draw right. from my relationships, my physical journey, my um, emotional journey, my business journey, wherever it is. And a lot of times I take a step back to say like, is that really where I want to go? And I think one thing that, you know, us, the type of person that we are is that we get caught up in that. And I think what it takes is a lot of self-reflection. And and that's why I use meditation is to just sit back, sit with my breath and my thoughts and be like, you know what, (laughs) like you said about your best day ever, I'm like, I'm living that right now. And it doesn't matter if I'm locked down in quarantine, if I'm on a retreat in El Salvador, if I'm training six clients and teaching five classes that day each one of those days to me has a purpose. And I know that I do want to do more. Like I'm not saying I'm settling at all. I do want to do more, but I want to do it at a pace in which I don't let any of those other things, the important things in my life fall to the wayside. And and it's hard because there are, there are times and days and weeks and months and in all honesty, years where I look back and I'm like, man, I did not fulfill those other buckets. But the fact that I think I can look back on that is something for me that is making this journey. I'm okay with it, like you said, maybe being a little bit slower, may, maybe not being the having a million Instagram followers. <laughs> right, and, right. and I'm just like, you know what? Those things to me, that's not what fulfillment is because I'm super fulfilled now. And I know I, I know I have more. Like I know there's a lot more in the tank and I'm cool, like you said, taking it a little bit longer to get there and knowing that I'm still filling up those other buckets. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, well said. I love that. Well, James, uh, I know that we will need a round two because I feel like <laughs> I'm looking at the time and be like, we're an hour in. I'm like, hey, this feels like 10 minutes. Just getting uh, started. There's so many other questions I want to ask and so many things that I think people would, would love to hear about. And I know that you have a lot of other resources out there, your podcast, things you're putting out on Instagram, your group. So for those that that also felt like this just scratched the surface, uh, we'll be back with James at some point. I can guarantee it. Hopefully once the quarantine ends, we'll meet up in person <laughs> and do one. Um, but I think I just want to say, and I know Jason does as well, just thank you. Um, thanks for opening up. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for being uh, that person that took action and that has fueled a lot of people to do the same because, you know, being in the coaching realm, it takes a lot out of somebody to coach. And I just want to say thanks for your time too. Um, and we wish you the best day ever. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you guys. Thank you for the work that you do and please continue to do it. Thank you, James.